Benjamin Smith walked into my office about three weeks ago and asked me if I would do this. And do you know how you have a mental picture of how something's going to look? I, I had a, I really had a, I, even on my way out tonight saying goodbye to my wife and my kids, I thought, this is going to be great, five or six of us sitting around a table <laughs> talking about the Psalms. That's really what I had in my, in my mind. Um, so wow, you're all here. Um, I've heard a lot about your church, and, and I, I commend you for your... Um, for where you're located in the city and your vision for the city. Uh, I, I go to Red Mountain Church, uh, which we're trying to figure out what that means too. Um, <laughs> one of our deacons is here. He knows this is, this is an ongoing discussion. So I, I, um, I commend you. I know, I, know you. I know a lot of you do some work at Cornerstone School as well. Um, and, and it's just some, some great things. So I, I'm, I'm glad to be with you all. Your reputation goes before you by the grace of God and, and the community. Um, let me begin with prayer, and then we'll just, we'll just dive in and, and see where this goes tonight, all right? So, uh, I, I know that we're going, well, we'll do it the way that Joel set it up, Q&A later, but if something is just bugging you, um, you feel free to interrupt. I don't mind the, that repartee. Um, I, I should go ahead and tell you as well, I, I, I think Red Mountain's kind of a cool church, and I get the sense that you're kind of a cool church. It's dawning on me, I'm not a cool person. Um, I mean, that's, it's a hard thing for me to come to grips with, but I'm, I'm really not. Um, so whatever that whole hipster thing is, that's, it's not me. Um, but I can tell you all are really, a lot of, a lot of the plastic rim glasses around. Um, and I look at mine, so I, well, I'll, I'll do the best I can to, to uh, accommodate the gospel to you tonight. All right, so let's, let's pray and then we'll, we'll hop in. Father, I'm, I'm so glad to be here with sisters and brothers who love you and who want to know you, who yearn for their lives to be marked by their following of you and by, more importantly, your, your grasp and love of them. And Lord, for those who are here tonight who are on the edges, wondering what this whole thing's about, um, as they even flirt with Redeemer Community Church, would they not see the love that is present in this place and know that God is here? And Father, tonight as we dive into your word, we do so humbly knowing that it doesn't matter what our skills are, our rhetorical skills, our biblical study skills, we, we don't have the power within our frame of reference to make the Bible happen. We, we, we don't have those skills. That, that is something that you, God, by the Holy Spirit, have to do, and, and we want you to do that because what we really want is Jesus, and, and we don't get Jesus except for the one that's presented to us here in the Bible, and you are alive. So all those things, Lord, I pray that you'll bring them together by your own good gift of grace to us tonight, and if that happens, and if we look back at the end of this evening and see that something happened here tonight, we will know that it was because of your kindness and your grace in your own work. And we pray these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, two, two points of introduction for you tonight. I, I'm on a bit of a mission. I, I don't know how it's happened, but I did graduate studies in New Testament. I, I've always wanted to do New Testament. 
That was my love was the New Testament. Um, and for some reason in the providence of God, I just keep getting forced into the Old Testament. I mean, do you want, do you want to know the profound reason why I'm at Beeson Divinity School? I mean, the profound reason is I couldn't find a New Testament job. Um, I mean, I hate to be so bald about it. Uh, and, and, and so there was an Old Testament, and now I'm in the Old Testament. And it just ha- has happened again and again. And so now I've just yielded to it, and I'm on a mission and the mission is to exercise a particular ghost that I still think haunts the evangelical church. And, and that ghost is the ghost of that second century heretic, the first really bad guy, I guess if we're going to label him that way, the first really bad guy in the life of the church is that fellow named Marcion. Uh, so Marcion shows up on the scene. He's really the first major heretic. And, and, uh, and what is it that Marcion's saying? He's saying something that that you've, you've maybe heard your grandma say, or, or, um, or your neighbor say, or someone who goes to a, a good, upstanding, Bible-believing church. You may have heard someone say something like this, and that is, you know, that God of the Old Testament, he's a bit of a crank. Um, but the God of the New Testament, Jesus, I, can, I like that guy, right? Um, and so there's this playing of the Old Testament God over against the New Testament God, and then this whole sort of scissors and cutting and pasting system happened with the Bible so that anything that smacked of the Old Testament God, which was material and physical and earthy and bound up with the messiness of Israel's history, all that stuff is bad. We want the spiritual, otherworldly, mystical out there, something other that doesn't get involved in the messiness of this world. That's Jesus and the God of the Old Testament. He's down here. I mean, I was on the phone. This isn't being recorded, is it? Yes, sir. Oh, shoot. Um, I was on the phone with my mother um, and, uh, recently. And I, I mean, my, 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 my you know who, um, r- reads her Bible way more than I do. I mean, I grew up with, I mean, my mother is a godly woman. And even my mother on the phone just earlier this year said something to me like, you know, the God of the Old Testament kind of bothers me sometimes. And, and there was a part of me that goes, well, this is a really fruitful conversation to have with one's mother. Uh, and, then, and then I thought on the flip side of it, but mom, you're, you know, you're, that's heretical. That's, that's really, really bad. Um, but, but I think those sentiments are out there. So I'm on a mission whenever I get the chance to put a plug in for the Old Testament because... The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one. They're both triune. <laughs> all right, that same God is triune. And, his, and, and He has a name. And His name is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that changes everything when it comes to interpreting the Old Testament. If you believe that the God who revealed Himself to Moses in Exodus 3, Ehye Asher Ehye, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. If we believe that that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It changes the whole interpretive game. So I'm on a, I, I, I believe that. Right? There's an assertion for you. Um, and at, at 9 o'clock or 8 o'clock, we can debate that if you'd like to a little bit. Here's the other thing. Um, you wouldn't have liked me when I was 19. I, I don't know. I was a Bible major. I studied Greek. I mean, again, I told you, I'm not, a cool, I'm not cool. I was, I was definitely not then. Um, really liked the I liked I liked the logical didactic parts of the Bible, 
You know, so even my, it became this sort of running joke with my buddies. Please, for, I'm married now, so I'm, I've, been, I've been expunged of these sins, okay? Um, but but I, I can remember dating in college, and, and, and I would ask, you know, the girls that I was dating, and what, so what are you reading in the Bible these days? Without a doubt, without a doubt, the answer was going to be the Psalms, right? And I can remember having these sort of arrogant, stupid conversations with my friends like, well, when's someone going to say Hosea? Or how about the logic of Paul in Romans? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm really wrestling with Romans 9 to 11 and how it turned, like I, I was really into that, and I still am because that, that made the cut too. That stuff's in the Bible as well. Um, but something's happened where I've, I found myself now gravitating back to the Psalms again and again. And I think the reason why I'm gravitating back to the Psalms is, you know, really the Psalms are kind of the tote bag, a, a compendium form, a, a little travel case that has the whole of biblical thought and theology in it. I mean, you, you, can, you really can find everything in the Psalms. And, and, and the Psalms then becomes a kind of a mirror, a mirror that shapes our souls, a mirror that shapes the way in which we understand what it is to, to follow in the, in the Christian life. And so I want to talk to you tonight a little bit about the Psalms, and, and this is what I'd like to do, and I'm not hopeful, um, but this is what I'd like to do in our time together, is um, I'd like to talk about lamenting. So the title of the first part is, The Psalms, A Warrant to Complain. And then I want to talk in the second part about praising um, because the title of the book of Psalms in Hebrew is the Tehillim, that is the, the praises. But if we were to do a quantitative analysis and you were to sort of set these psalms according to their genre or their style, there's all kinds of psalms. There are, there are praise psalms. There are wisdom psalms. There are Torah psalms. There are thanksgiving psalms. There's all kinds of psalms. But if we were to, to categorize them and quantify them, there is an overwhelming majority of lament psalms in the book of the of the salt in the psalter of the book of psalms. There are, there are more lament psalms. There are more complaining psalms. There are more complaint psalms uh, than any other uh, kind of psalm in the Bible. Even though the book is called praises, and we'll talk more about that, there are more laments than than any other kind. And I am. Um, I think we've been fed a lie in Christian spirituality. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't presume to know the, the world out of which you come. I mean, some of you may be new to the faith. Some of you may have been in the church for a long time. But I think we've been fed a lie when it comes to Christian spirituality, or that is a kind of Christian spirituality that emphasizes this ever-growing ascendancy upward that doesn't take into account the complexity and the fragmented nature of life. Um, uh, for example, it's, uh, did, any, did any of you sing this song when you were little? I, I did. Maybe this is going to show the world I come out of. But do you remember this one? Every day with Jesus is sweet. Me and you. Me and you. Right? <laughs> Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Um, and, I, and there's a sense in which that's true, I guess. But I think there's a sense in which our lived experiences would tell us something that, you know, that's, that's really not true. 
And if we enter into the Christian life with that kind of understanding, that what, what I call, let's call it hallmark Christianity, or, or, or an overly sentimentalized approach to Christianity that doesn't allow into the very fabric of what it means to be a Christian the disorder and the chaos of being human, um, then, then I think we've, we've lost something. If we can't sing every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before and quickly follow it up with William Cooper's God moves in mysterious ways His wonders to perform, or behind a frowning providence there is a smiling face. I mean, these are, these are the kind of hymns that allow into our, into our very lives the difficulty and the complexity of, of being human. So what I think the Psalms do, and why I like the Psalms, is that the Psalms force us to, to take some sort of account of this. To, to, to look at the Psalms like a mirror and say, well, what role does complaint and lament have in my Christian experience? Because if we're going to learn something about the book of the Psalms, we're going to learn this. God wants us to live our lives in His presence. And let me expand that. God wants us to live all of our lives in His presence, from the A to the Z, from the beginning to the end, the, from the mountaintops to the bottom of the, of the valley. He wants us to live all of it there. And so if you have the sort of hallmark Christianity, this, this sentimentalized Christianity, or, or let's use another kind of Christianity, um, braveheart Christianity, right? A stiff upper lip. You know, lay down on the table and let them gut you out as they're ripping out whatever that is they're doing in that last scene of that movie, right? Um, you, know, that, that, you know, stiff upper lip. Don't, don't, uh, you know, don't allow suffering. Don't allow woundedness. Don't allow that fragmented side to come into your existence, just you know, face it. And these things are very hurtful. And, and maybe some of you have met that kind of Christianity. That does, it's a triumphalist Christianity. It's, it's, a, it's a Christianity that has all resurrection but doesn't recognize any, any cross. I mean, maybe you've met that kind of Christianity. It can be very, um, uh, very hurtful. Uh, Calvin John Calvin, and I'd make a joke with my students, and I don't really mean this, but you know, the joke is, I, you know, I, I asked Jesus in my heart when I was nine, and then when I was about 18, I asked Calvin into my heart. I mean, that's, that's bad. Um, uh, but uh, Calvin, when he was wrestling with, with, with some of these issues in, in, the, in, in his uh, systematic theology called the Institutes, he said that people who have that sort of stoic view of Christianity that don't allow grief in, are fanatics. That's his actual term. They're fanatics who don't allow in so, uh, godly sorrow, real grieving, real, real pain. Now let me read you a few things here. Listen to this from Martin Luther. Are you, are you still with me? You're all here? Okay. Listen to what he says about the Psalms. Where does one find finer words of joy than in the psalms of praise and thanksgiving. There you look into the hearts of all the saints, as into fair and pleasant gardens, yes, as even into heaven itself, end quote. That's the part I like. That's good stuff. I mean, when you get into these praise psalms, I mean, it's like you've gone into the Garden of Eden. These are people who are living life on the mountaintop in the presence of God. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise unto the Lord all ye lands. That's wonderful stuff. Right? But he goes on. On the other hand, where do you find deeper 
more sorrowful, more pitiful words of sadness than in the Psalms of Lamentation. There again, and listen to this clause right here, there again, you look into the hearts of the saints. He's talking about us now, the saints. As into death, yes, as into hell itself, end quote. So from our heavenly experiences all the way down to our hellish ones, all of life is lived in God's presence. And the Psalms testify to the fact that God wants to be in the middle of that. He wants to be acknowledged. He wants to be talked to from the mountaintop to the valleys that lay down below. I mean, in other words, and we'll get into this some more tonight, but in other words, what the Psalms tell us is that we can talk to God in risky ways. It's the, I mean, you think about some of the things that are said. I'm going to read some of it to you tonight. But some of the things that are said, said in these Psalms of Lament, I mean, can you, I don't know if you do this at Redeemer. We're Presbyterians. We definitely don't do this. Um, but, you know, like open mic testimony night. I mean, do you guys ever do this? We're the body ministers to the body. Yeah, right. <laughs> that makes that kind of thing makes Presbyterians sweat. I mean, we. I mean, even though we're a cool church, we don't we don't do that. Um, but you know, open mic night, people come up and give testimonies about what the Lord's done in their lives. It could be a very really wonderful time. Um, but I mean, can you imagine Jeremiah getting up at open mic night and saying, "I want to tell you something. God called me to be a prophet. He said I didn't have a choice. I'm gonna. You're gonna go do this. Whatever I tell you to say, Jeremiah, you're gonna say it." Wherever I send you, Jeremiah, you're going to go there. He goes on in the first chapter of Jeremiah, and he says, uh, by the way, Jeremiah, don't be dismayed in front of them, because if you are, I'll dismay you in front of them. I mean, I, it's the classic parenting line. Um, if you keep on crying, I'm going to... Right, give you something to cry. I think we had a very similar past. Um, I mean, th- this, is, this, is, this is the logic, I think, that, that's coming out in Jeremiah 1, and then what happens? It doesn't go so well for Jeremiah. It's a hard calling. And what does he say right to God's face? You deceived me, and I was deceived. I mean, can you imagine someone getting up in church and giving that kind of testimony? I, I thought my Christian life was going to be like this, but it was, it's ended up being like this, and, I, and, and God's deceived me. Uh, I'm going to sit down now, right? Or... Um, or the psalm that we're going to look at tonight in Psalm 73. These are, these are striking words. Listen to this in, in Psalm 13. I just want to read you a lament. I'm, you can look at it if you want to. We'll, we'll do so if you have your Bibles. I, I saw a lot of you bringing them in. This is a classic lament, so I'm not even going to exposit it. I'm just going to read it to you. All right, so open mic night at Urban Coffee. What, urban, what's this called? Standard. Yeah. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death and my enemy will say I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I am shaken. And just while you have it here so that you kind of have a sense of what goes on, uh, um, very important words in English, and they are also very important in, in Hebrew as well. But I. That's the transition that you have in these lament psalms. There's lament, there's complaint, 
uh, there's gauntlet throwing. I mean, that's, that happens in the Psalms. If you don't rescue me, then my enemies are going to exult over me and they're going to mock you. So there's gauntlet throwing that goes down. But then there's a, there's a shift into the but I. Um, and this is now moving to praise. But I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Um, I have three boys. I have a, a six-year-old son named William, uh, a four-year-old named Jackson, and a one-year-old named Franklin. And, um, you know, God's having fun with me, I think, on this whole parenting thing. I was a youth director for five years. That assures me that I'm getting into heaven, by the way. Um, but I was a youth director for five years. And, um, and I can remember thinking thoughts as a youth director like, I didn't have kids. Why can't you get your kids in line? You know, those sort of horribly arrogant things that single people who don't have kids tend to think, you know? And, um, or, or how do you think I'm a youth director going to help your teens when you haven't been, you know, all these just horrible things. And now, who's laughing? Not me, right? Now, I'm, I've, we've, we've got intense little boys, and they're all boy. And they all have earned, they, they have earned PhDs in whining, right? I mean, they, they're... they're I mean, they're very proficient at whining. It's, it's a gift to, that, that's, that they have. Um, and, and, I, and I have no doubt that they're going to end up on Dr. Phil someday. I mean, I know that's going to happen. But this is our policy now. Um, and I'm not saying we're always consistent with it. We're rarely consistent on anything. But, uh, but this, is our, this is our policy. It's, um, and this is really bad with Jackson right now, my four-year-old. Uh, when they whine, I'll say to Jackson, Jackson, um, I... I can't understand you when you're whining. But if you want to talk to me like a big boy, right, then daddy will hear what you have to say. But right now with your whining, I can't, I can't understand you. Right? I think that's right. I don't know. You, come, you correct me later. I mean, I, I think that's the right approach. Um, but here's the thing that, that sort of gnaws at me as I say, even as I articulate that to, to my boys, and I'll continue to do so. That's not how God deals with me. He doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, in the book of Psalms, God not only authorizes, He opens up the door for us to come into His presence and to whine and to complain. To just lay it out there. To lay it bare. How long are you going to do this to us? Um, I, I was sinking down and you haven't rescued me yet. And the list goes on and on of the kind of laments and complainings that we see in the book of Psalms like Psalm 88, it ends dark, and the darkness was my closest friend. Period. It's the only lament psalm that doesn't end in praise. Uh, it's, you know, that, that, there's room for that. And that tells me something about the nature of the book of Psalms. And, and I don't know how you understand the book of Psalms, but I think a typical way of understanding Psalms is that the Psalms are human expression. Inspired, right? But, but human expression... That's directed uh, to God, okay? Um, and, and that's true, right? This is where John Donne, the old uh, English poet, said that the Psalms are like manna for the soul. Or, or like John Calvin said about the Psalms, the Psalms reveal the anatomy of all the parts of our soul. 
or like Gregory of Nyssa, uh, the 4th century theologian from the Cappadocian father from the East. Like he said, what are the Psalms? Well, the Psalms reflect for us what it means to walk in our Christian life from blessing uh, to confusion to loss and then back to blessing again. It's all about human expression to God, and I think that that's, that's true. But I don't know if you've ever noticed this in, in the Psalms. And you can look there. I mean, someone look at, uh, if you have a Bible, and I think all of our English Bibles do this, but someone, one of you look at the end of, um, of chapter 41 or the beginning of chapter 42 and see what you find there. Boy, now, am I right? Yeah. So what's that big thing at the top of chapter 42? What does it say? Book 2. Have you ever noticed this before? Right? Book 2. Well, then you come to the end of chapter 72. Let's look there for a second, because we're going to come back. My father hates it when I'm teaching and make people turn in their Bibles a lot, so I'm sorry about that. But that's why you're here. Um, here's something very fast. Look, look at the way in which Psalm 72 ends. The prayers of David, son of Jesse, are ended. rut right? Why is that a problem? Well, all we have to do is like turn a few pages and we see more, more Davidic songs. I'm going to come back to what I think is going on here. But what's, what do you see at the top of uh, chapter 73? Book what? All right, you're getting it here. Look at the top of chapter 90. I should say chapter 90, Psalm 90. Book 4. And then look at the end of Psalm, the beginning of Psalm 107. Book what? 5, right? Well, self-evident. So, um... That's actually not in the Hebrew. There's not book one, book two, but, but it's, it's set up canonically, the way in which the book is shaped. Every one of these sections ends with amen, ve, amen, amen, and amen. And then it goes on into a next section, amen and amen. So that becomes kind of a literary guide, like a, like a signpost that tells you, well, that particular segment of the Psalter is done. Now we're going on to another segment. So you have five books. Now this book of the Psalms, the whole book, I don't know how you've understood the Psalms before, but we, we've tended to think of the Psalms as kind of a, I have before, as a, as a willy-nilly thrown together hymn book, right? Here's one here, here's one there. But what you, when, you, when you step back and look at the book of the Psalms as a whole, the Psalter as a whole, what do you see? We see this intentional five-book structure. What else in the Old Testament is a five-book structure? Rhymes with Intituk. Uh, the, the, the Pentateuch, right? Um, I'm sorry, I'm teaching, I'm teaching summer Hebrew, and, it's, uh, and I'm, these are bad teaching habits I fall into. Um, uh, the Pentateuch is a five-book structure. And what do we call the Pentateuch? We call it the Torah. We call it the law. We call it instruction. And, and now, another thing, I'm trying, I'm trying to make a case here. Uh, Psalm 1. How does Psalm 1 begin? Which I think Psalm 1 and 2, by the way, aren't just... Um, the beginnings of book one of the Psalter, but they're actually the thematic heads of the whole book of Psalms. That, that emphasizes both 
uh, what Psalm 1 emphasizes, and then I'm not going to get into Psalm 2, but Psalm 2 emphasizes the reign, the kingdom, the kingship of God, and his anointed one. Right? Now, I won't get into that, but I think there's huge overlap there, by the way, of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount. But I, can't, I, I, won't, go down, I won't chase that rabbit trail. But here we go to Psalm 1. You, you know the psalm, right? Uh, or, or some of you may. Um, blesses the man. I always get these confused. Blesses the man. Or we'll be uh, sensitive. Blesses the person who does not. How do we do this here, right? Walk, stand, and then sit with bad people. That's my Eugene Peterson gloss on that, right? Uh, with bad people. Um, but they delight in the law of the Lord. You see, there, there's, a, there's a mindset in, in a lot of academic circles, frankly, that places the law over against the worshiping cultic setting of, the, of, of, um, of Israel's religious expression to God. So that's the legal side, but Israel's real religion is the cult. It's what they do at temple. It's what they do in synagogue. That's what we see in the Psalms. So they, they make this disjunction, a, a bad disjunction between the law and worship, but not Psalm 1. Right? The blessed person is the person who um, delights in the law of the Lord. And that's the person who's going to be like a tree that's planted by a river. And there's going to be fruit that falls off of that person's life. But the wicked, not so like them. They're going to be like the chaff which the wind drives away. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's, it's, uh, it's better than the honeycomb. It's sweeter than... You remember that? It's beautiful. Uh, uh, a reflection on the perfection and the glory and the goodness and the sweetness of the law of God. And then what's the longest psalm? Psalm 119. And guess what Psalm 119 is? It's a whole long reflection on the law. And for those of you who may have noticed this even in your English Bibles, I think most of them uh, uh, indicate this, but it's, it's a Hebrew acrostic. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, all the way to Tav. It'd be like saying A to Z. So, so, so what's, I think, Psalm 119, at least the way in which it's formed, what's it trying to say to us in its literary shape? The A to Z of life, the Aleph to the Tav, the A to the Z, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning to the end, all of it is meant to be lived in light of the teaching and the law and the authority of God. And that's where the light is. It's like a light unto my feet um, and for my path. So what, what's, what am I trying to make a case for here? Yes, yes, the Psalms are a reflection of human expression to God that meets us in all of the contours of life, all of them. But the Psalms are also Torah. The Psalms are instruction. The Psalms are a word from God about how He wants us to interact with Him, about how He wants us to engage Him, about how He wants us to live life before Him. And you know that's true, don't you? It's, it's a bit sort of counseling cliche-ish, I know it. But, but you know, if you ask somebody, what's the opposite of love? It's not really hate, is it? Um, because those of you who are married, you know how... You know how quick that line, now don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, but you know how quick that line can get crossed over. I mean, I love my wife, I love my wife, whammo, we're, we're, we're in some sort of, uh, I mean, that happened to us like three years ago, I think, me and my wife. Um, but, but, it's not, but hate's not really the opposite of love. What's, what's really the opposite of love? It's indifference, isn't it? That's why I, I heard one marriage guru say that the worst kind of punishment you can do to your spouse is the silent treatment. 
That's the worst. Why? Because what, what are you doing in the silent treatment? You're basically saying, in effect, right now, I don't care whether you're alive or dead. You don't exist to me right now, right? That's that kind of indifference. And God does not want indifference from his people. He would rather swearing and the shaking of the fists than the indifference that I really don't care whether you exist or not. He wants all of it. He wants the joy. He wants the complaint. He wants the lament. And he's moving us somewhere in the gospel. He's moving us to ultimate praise and reflection on him. I'm not going to make my goal tonight. So can we look at Psalm 73, and then, and then I'll stop and we'll take questions. Unless you want to just fight, like you just, you got to get it out. You want to ask anything now? Okay. Sorry, Joel, I just broke the rule. Yes. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to treat this like a class situation. Now, you, you feel free to fire back at me. Um, I, you know, I use whining and complaining for a certain rhetorical effect, admittedly, right? But with that said, um, you know, I, I want to avoid an overly detached and, and sterile way of looking at this. And this is part of my goal, even as I think about pastoral counseling and dealing with people who are suffering. I do think we need, as, as disciples, as people who love those who are in suffering, I mean, at some point, we need to move them to the but I part, right? Remember how the Psalms make that move? But I also think, because of the way in which the Psalms are shaped, that we do need to allow people to have some space to live in the grief, in the sorrow, in the frustration, in the why part, right, that comes before that, uh, that uh, conjunction, but I. Um, it, it, I'm stealing from Walter Brueggemann here, but the, the movement of lament psalms and really the whole book of psalms is from disorientation to orientation. And I think sometimes we can do real harm to, to sweet followers of Jesus when they're in real disorientation and we try to push them too quickly to orientation. Now, I don't know. I mean, you know, some people are going to have maybe a stoical take on how they enter into their suffering. Other people are going to be a little bit more unguarded. But, but it's, I don't want to make it clean. I don't want to sanitize it. It's messy. And when you have somebody 
Okay, I'm going to get hyperbolic here, but it's really not hyperbolic. You all know this. When you have a mother who miscarried for the fifth time, right, and she's just tired of it. I mean, I, I, have a, I know someone right, I'm thinking of her right now, right? Or, and, and just, or another failed relationship again. Right now, for you, you're like, well, that's, not, that's kind of picky-unish to me. I don't care about that. I'm a man. I can handle this. But, but, but maybe not in another thing. I mean, in other words, there's some fear trigger. There's some trigger that will get all of us and can disorient us to such a state that we are, we are lost. And I think there's some wisdom, biblical wisdom, in allowing people to remain in that space for a while. Now, whining, complaining, I'm, you know, I'm not going to go to the guillotine over the terms that I use. But as far as expressing to God honest confusion and honest disappointment in Him, I'm, I'm disappointed in you. I think the Bible allows room for that. And I think we need to allow people to have the space to do that kind of thing as they live life before God. Think about Job, right? Oh, don't do... No, I shouldn't say that. I mean Job. But don't do studies on Job. It'll ruin your life. Um, I, I'm just joking. Um, but think about Job, right? I mean, here's Job, first three chapters. Braveheart Christianity. I mean, there it is. Curse God and die, his wife says. Oh, you're a foolish woman. How can I do that? The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. How blessed is the name of the Lord, right? That's the good part, the first three chapters. I like that part of Job. That's, you know, that's William Wallace. I, I, can, I, can, I can do that. But then we go into chapter 4, and I, I begin to see some very interesting things. Number one, his friends come. And they end up being bad guys, and we know that because by the end of the book, they're having to be atoned for by Job. Remember that part? So they're having to come in and do something for Job. Um, but they come in, and they sit with Job in silence for seven days. That was when his friends were at their best. But immediately when they opened their mouth, it went downhill from there. Now I think we need to open our mouths. We need to speak truth and love into people's lives. But there is a lot of times, to my mind pastorally, when being quiet, ministry of presence, letting people be in the deep end of the pool, not trying to rescue them too quickly, and, and, and praying. I mean, there's, there's really something, there's something to that. And as you go on in the book of Job... And it gets messy. What does Job keep saying? I, I want a court appearance now. Because what they're saying is not true about me. I want a court appearance with God right now. And he goes on just lambasting the whole time. I mean, I, this is, we're talking, right, friends, tonight. But, um, you know, I'm very careful with my students at Beeson when they're taking Hebrew. I, I encourage them never to use this as sort of a will-to-power tool. You know, I went to seminary. I know a little Hebrew. Uh, it says yes in your Bible, but really it means no. You know, I, 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 I'm against that. There's a real danger in that. But there is one of those verses in, in Job that the traditional rabbinic uh, scribes, the, the Masoretes, tweaked, and it's the one that got the cut in most of our English translations. And it's one, a verse that you know. I hope I don't hurt anybody here tonight with this, but... Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. I, I, this, it's one of those scenarios where I actually think the text is saying, you keep slaying me and I'm not going to trust you anymore. You can see why the rabbinic scholars didn't like that. Say, so we got to fiddle with that a little bit. Um, so I, you have all of that. And then what happens? God shows up on the scene. He gives Job his day in court. Okay, Job, you want to have a, a little tit-a-tat with me? We'll do that. You stand there, and then what happens? 
You know, Joe, you know what it's like. Someone talks a big game, right? I'm ready, I'm ready to show up. And then it comes to game time, and you're like, well, where was that big game? You know, Job had all these questions lined up in his mind that he was ready to ask God. God shows up onto the scene, and Job is silenced. Where were you? you know, and, and then he moves him into restoration. Job puts his hand over his mouth. All to say, I, I, I just, that's, that's messy. It's real messy. And, and for those of you who are in pastoral ministry, or those of you who are sort of rubbing shoulders with other Christians, you know it's messy. I mean, your neighbors know it's messy. Um, and so that's what I think, you know, whatever nomenclature you want to use, I don't, I don't care. Um, but as far as allowing people the space in their Christian existence to voice real complaint and, and real hardship before God, um, I think we need to allow that space and not necessarily feel the pressure, the sort of pious pressure, to push them on too quickly. I had a woman, um, some of you would know her if I said her name, actually. Um, her, um, her husband died tragically and um, they were very close and uh, actually she was in our church she, she grieved in this sort of hemorrhaging hemorrhaging kind of grief for years you know after he he died um, the pastor at my church Tom Cannon and I have kind of laughed with one, with one another that if our if we die our wives may grieve for six months but they'll get over it I mean they're going to move on um, I mean she was just in deep grief and she emailed me and asked me if she could sit in on my Psalms class at, um, at Beeson. And I said, yeah. And my wife and I had had our own uh, sort of brush with suffering as well in the past year. And so, you know, here she is in this class. And it, it became rich, you know, just the experience. She sat in my office one time and she said, uh, Mark, does the sovereignty of God still work for you? And when I was 23-year-old and sort of a rabid, salivating Calvinist, man, I would have, uh, that was like, you know, being at the skeet range, you know, pool, boom, right? Um, but, you know, when you're not 22 anymore and, and you've, you've been to the cemetery a couple times and you've seen people, you've seen marriages fall apart and, you know, it's not that you don't believe it anymore, but you're not so cavalier about it. You know, you recognize, yeah, I believe in the sovereignty of God, but you know what? That hurt, it hurts too. Um, Teresa of Avila, a medieval mystic. Uh, There's a story about her where she's, she's ill, she's traveling, and she comes to a river that she has to cross. And she says, God, why, why are you doing this to me? I, I'm, I'm so sick. Why are you doing this to me? And he responds and he says, well, don't you know, I hurt my friends. And she responded by saying, yeah, and that's why you have so few of them. Right? Um, I mean, that's the, is that the fine print of the gospel message? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? I mean, that's true. Um, do you know that famous picture of, uh, of um, the early Christian martyrs where they're in the Colosseum and um, Polycarp is praying in the middle and they're surrounding him and the picture is looking in from the sort of the side wall of the Colosseum over the back of a lion who's about to be released on these Christians. To, to, it's a famous picture of the early martyrs. And, and I saw this one time as a cartoon. You know, there it is. And the caption was, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? I mean, that's the, that's the fine print that there's suffering in this thing. And what we all want, I know it's what you want, so what I want is we, we really want Jesus. Um, and the fine print is the way in which we get him in, in deep and profound ways is by the means of grace and in the school of suffering. I don't like it. I wish it wasn't that way. Um, 
but, but it is. That was a longer answer than you wanted. Oh, Psalm 73. Let's look at it real fast. Truly God is good to the upright. I won't go into all the details, but this is the first psalm in book three. I think that's significant. It's both looking backward, it's pointing forward, and when you move into book three of the Psalter, there are the darkest of the psalms. As far as sort of a, um, a collection of laments, there's, there's more laments per capita in book three than anywhere else. So we're, we're going into a dark part of Israel's life before God. Truly God is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. That's his confession of belief. This is Asaph. In other words, I, I've read some commentators that say that surely he's being tongue-in-cheek here, a little sarcastic, in light of what, what's about to come. But I don't think so. And, and the reason why I don't think so really is, is a linguistic argument. How does the next verse start? You, you, you know, in Hebrew it's a big deal, and in English it is too. How does the next verse start? But I. Do you see that? That's a disjunctive. So it's like the first verse is, is, is kind of like a big umbrella title for the whole thing. Yes, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Uh, this, is, this is Asaph's confession of belief. This is what he really believes to be true. This is true. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is my credo. Do you, do you guys do confessions of faith at Redeemer? Right? This is my, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That, that, that's his confession. It's, his, it's what he believes. But what's happened here in Psalm 73? It's what happens all the time in the life of the church. It's the crisis of when our confession of faith collides with what we're experiencing. I believe this to be true. But what I'm experiencing is coming into radical, it's a brick wall. I've run into a brick wall with my belief and my experience. And that's where we go in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They don't have any pain. Their bodies are sound and sleek. And here's the funny thing about this. You know that's not true. Don't you? But... I, and again, I don't want to sort of overly read this here and get overly, I don't want to do a sort of psychoanalysis on Asaph here, but, but um, I mean, people do that when they're grieving, when they're lamenting, when they're complaining. They, they get kind of hyperbolic. I mean, you know, don't you, that Tiger Woods has problems, right? I mean, real problems. Or these people who, I mean, they're wealthy, they have their own yachts, they're li I mean, they don't have any of the troubles I have. I mean, I, look at the wealthy, look at the prosperous out there, look at the wicked. I mean, you know their marriages have problems, you know their kids are giving them grief, you know that they're having trouble at work, you know that they're popping pills for their anxiety is just like everyone else. You know that's true, but that's not his experience, you see, and I think this is what's, what he's saying, they, they're not they don't have trouble as others do, they're not plagued like other people, pride's their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes, they swell out with fatness. It means they're just they're overly prosperous. They scoff and they speak with malice. They set their mouths against the heaven. Therefore people turn and praise them. They say there's no fault in them. And this is the worst part. They, they even say, God doesn't even know about this. There's no knowledge with the Most High. Uh, we're living life as if He doesn't exist. And guess what? It's fine. It's, it's actually pretty good. Now listen to verse 13. You have the 
first confession in verse 1. And here's the reshaped confession now in verse 13. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been plagued and am punished every morning. That's his new confession of faith. Can I put it in the, in the language of the book of Psalms? This is what he's saying. I did Psalm 1. I did that. And the return's been nil. I didn't follow in the way of the wicked. I followed in your way. But it's not working for me. It was in vain that I did all of that. You see when he says that, I saw the prosperity of the wicked? That's not. I don't like that translation too much, and I don't mean to disparage translations, but, but the, the Hebrew word, there's a word you all know. It's shalom. I saw the shalom of the wicked. I saw their, I saw their wholeness. I saw their peace. Um, in Psalm 29, verse 11, you can look at this at another time, but in Psalm 29, 11, shalom is what God promises to His people. And what is it that Asaph sees? He, he looks at it and says, well, what you promised to us is actually being enjoyed by them. They're in our house, sitting in our couch, eating our food. And, and uh, I could take it for a while. But stress fractures have sort of given way to full cracks, and now my walls are about to fall. And he's sensitive enough in these next few verses to say, if I would have talked this way, I would have betrayed the children of this generation. I mean, in other words, he, he knows there's a communal responsibility that he has as a leader for God's people. I mean, if I start talking this way to the sheep, I mean, this is, this is dangerous. So what do we see, though? Oh, another B-U-T there in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Well, I won't take a long time to engage all of that. But what happens to Asaph? Does his problem... Does his theological angst, does the philosophical problem of evil that he's raised get answered here? Not really. And you know what? It didn't get answered for Job either. When he raises these profound philosophical questions that have plagued Christianity throughout the ages, I mean, it's what your skeptical friend at work asks you all the time. If God's all-loving and all-powerful, then why do these things happen? You know, you know what God's answer to that would, to Job was? It was shut your mouth. That's what God's answer was there. But you can't always, I mean, don't do that to your coworker, right? Um, but but uh, he, God doesn't answer. He doesn't meet us on that level. But what happens? His, his, he's reoriented. God comes back into view. I'm in the sanctuary. God had been displaced to the periphery, but now he's been brought back to the center, and it doesn't mean that all my questions are answered, but I have Him. And that's what it says later. Who do I have in heaven or earth beside you? I don't, I don't, there's nothing more. It doesn't mean that I'm going to have all of my problems resolved for me. But what else do I have? You remember that conversation Jesus had with Peter? And all these disciples heard Jesus speaking, and it was just a hard word. And they turned around and they left. And Jesus looked at Peter and He said, Peter, you too? And what did Peter say? I don't have anywhere else to go. And that's, I think, what Asaph's saying here. I mean, I'm confused, it's difficult, but I don't have anywhere else to go. And I'm going to hold on to you, believing in the end, no matter what. I'm going to hold on to you, Christ, no matter what, 
even though I might not have all my problems resolved, eventually I believe in the afterward, in the glory, in the resurrection. Well, this is very Baptist of me, but I'm going to end with a poem. And this is a poem, it's, it's so, it seems so like it was written yesterday, but this is a poem from Gregory of Nazianzus, who was referred to as the theologian, Cappadocian father from the East, great Trinitarian theologian. Listen to this. He's a, he's a bishop, by the way, all right? A prayer to Christ. Where's the injustice? I was born human, well and good. But why am I so battered by life's tidal waves? I'll speak my mind, harshly perhaps, but I'll speak. Were I not yours, my Christ, this life would be a crime. We're born, we age, we reach the measure of our days, I sleep, I rest, I wake again, I go my way with health and sickness, joys and struggles as my fare, sharing the seasons of the sun, the fruits of the earth, and death, and then corruption, just like any other beast whose life, though lowly, is innocent of sin, what more do I have? Nothing more except for God. Were I not yours, my Christ, this life would be a crime. There's a bad kind of reductionism that I think can reduce the complexities of Christian life to two simple formulas. But I'm going to do a little reductionism here right now. And that is, I really do think that our struggle with Christ and the Gospel and the way in which it shapes our relationships, the way in which it shapes our hopes and our disappointments, really boils down to Jesus asking us, am I enough for you? Am I enough? And that's the whole shooting match. See, the Gospel is not just the ticket to get onto the train, and then once I get on the train, I want all the goodies. You know, where's the candy cart? Where's the drink cart? The gospel is the ticket, it's the train, it's the caboose, it's the whole nine yards. And that's a constant challenge that I think the Psalms present us in our suffering and in our lamenting. Is Christ enough? And when we can answer that by His grace, yes, then we begin to move to the but I part. Lord, we do need you in this. And, and I pray now as we enter into our discussion time that you will let us mutually encourage one another as we wrestle with these things. In the name of Christ, amen. All right. I'm on. Am I on? Okay. <clears throat> um, you know, that changes. And it's one of the... It's one of the things that I like about the Psalter. Um, Because it's going to meet people at different stations of their life. And and I would say, all right, it's probably, well, well, right now it's Psalm 73. um, and, And it has been for a couple of years. My wife will tell you, um, in a sort of in our in our own familial suffering, uh, we had a sort of an acute scenario in our family, and and um, sh- surely God is good to Israel. It, 
it, it almost became for her, um, uh, it, it was a means of grace. It was the Bible for her um, to have that. You know, so you know, when those things happen in certain seasons of life, you might move on from the season, but those, those psalms still remain special. Um, I can still remember my mother, Psalm 57.1, saying it over and over again. Um, be merciful to me. Be merciful until these calamities pass by. And, and, um, so it just depends, and that's what I like about it. I mean, Joel and I were talking at the break, and you mentioned something about, I guess you guys do a, um, uh, a, a corporate recitation of a psalm at the beginning of worship. Is that what you're telling me? And, um, you know, that's one of the wonderful things about doing that together as community and the life of the church, because... You might not be in a particular station that that, that that psalm is, but your friend is, or someone in the community of faith is, and you enter into praise and lament together. It's, that's Paul, right? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think that, that dynamic of, of, of um, allowing the psalms to be as full and whole as it is to meet us in different places. Uh, what's your favorite? Psalm 13. Interesting. Well, that's providential. Me and you tonight, that's my whole lesson. Yes, sir. That's a good question, and I, I'm going to be careful how I answer that because um, it's not as easy a question to answer as it might seem. You know, it's it's kind of like uh, relationships. You know, people people tend to view other people's relationships through their own. Like everyone's everyone's dating relationship must be like mine, or everyone's everyone's marriage has to be this. You know, have you found that where you know people sort of impose their own stories on you, and our stories are so different. Now, I grew up with the Psalms, and I do see that as a grace of God in my life. Um, so there, that's, it's such a part of my DNA um, that that's just going to be different for how it's worked for me than it might be for you. I think I would say to you, just like any good literature, and, and these analogies always break down, but just like any good literature... Um, it demands to be read again and again and again. Uh, those of you who have read a really good book, you know, you know what, I'm, what I'm talking about, right? Um, you read it once and you're like, wow, that was good. You read it again like, wow, I didn't see that. And, and the Bible has that kind of potential as well. So that I would say, you know, don't get hung up on the parts that you don't understand, um, but sort of focus in on the ones that you do. And, and then... And then uh, I'll give you an example from the, from the history of the church. Uh, St. Augustine, St. Augustine. Have any of you been to Beeson Divinity School besides your, in the chapel? Lord, you have, right? Uh, and you know this big dome that's in our chapel? And, and we have all these big hitters in the history of the church that are in the dome. Well, one of them is St. Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you want to say it. And um, when Augustine became a Christian under Ambrose of Milan, this is in his Confessions, 
he goes to Ambrose, his bishop, and he says, tell me what I should read to prepare me for my baptism. And Ambrose said, go read Isaiah. Because in Isaiah, you will find the Gospel prefigured better than any other book, right? So what is, what is, what is he does? It's okay. So he goes and he begins to read Isaiah. And this is almost verbatim what Augustine says. He said, I found the first chapter so obscure that I figured the rest of the book must be equally difficult. So I decided to put Isaiah aside until I could learn the Lord's style of language a bit better. Now that's Augustine. He made the dome, right? I mean, why teach? Um... So, you know, I would say cut yourself some slack on that and give yourself some time. There, there are disciplines that are involved in this, but give yourself some time to learn the Lord's style of language. It's, um, you know, it's not like modern poetry. It's terse. It's uh, laconic. There's parts of it that are problematic and difficult. And I would just say kind of dive in. There's 150 of them. Find four that you really like and read them a lot. And then, you know, maybe build off of that. I don't know. I mean, again, that, that might be a strategy for you. But I would say I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't allow there to be any guilt, you know, a, a connect, or shame connected to the fact that, boy, that just doesn't, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't love those. Well, you know, there is a discipline in the life of the church to learning the Lord's style of language. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of the Bible that's like that. Um, and so we all have our parts that we like better. And it's just as part of, I think, uh, growing in the Christian faith is to sort of begin to expand out. You want to come back on that? Um, Clarify. Yeah, well, I think that my, my big problem with it is probably mainly is that like, I read through it once in 150, and I, I don't know, I think it's that I just, I get lost. Like, because it jumps around so Yeah, yeah, and, and maybe I mean you sound like you're, you're you're someone who thinks analytically. So I mean, it might be an, it might be an idea to go on Amazon and find a you know Trimper Longman's How to Read the Psalms to maybe get some sense of how you know how the book works. Um, but I, I I think you're right. I mean that's one of the that's one of the the, the we we get the Bible that we get, and it's not necessarily the one that we want. Think about what Cecil B. DeMille had to do with Exodus to make it into the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. I mean, he had to have this big, you know, sibling rivalry between Moses and Ramses. That, that's not in the Bible, but you got to have that. I mean, he's got to, you know, the Bible's not good enough. It's got to be sexied up a little bit to make it onto the screen. Um, and that's one of the things I think we always have to wrestle with is, is the fact that, um, well, here's another example, right? I, I, the King James Version of the Psalms is better than the Psalms. I mean, what do you do when you have scholars born out of the Elizabethan era of English? I mean, that's, that's English at its height. We're talking about Shakespeare now. What do you do with people who have those sort of rhetorical tools and gifts that meet a language like barbaric, a language like Hebrew that Jerome, the early, early monk, called barbaric? I mean, it's a, it's a language that's, I mean, it's, it's kind of rough. It's, you know, what do you do? Well... What do you, well, the translation is even better than the original. And I think that's where we have to wrestle with, okay, God, your word is sufficient, and it's what you've given us, and, uh, and I'm just going to have to sort of wrestle with that and, and, and see how it goes. Yes, sir. Talk about 
Yeah. A little new agey, a little, yeah. Well, I mean, the larger issue that I think you're tapping into is how we, how we understand the way in which the Bible refers to itself and how we understand the ways in which the Bible's terms need to be understood within the framework of the Bible itself. And that's always going to be an interpretive challenge because we all come with baggage, whether we want to admit it or not. I mean, I am a kind of white middle-class guy, and I read the Bible like a white middle-class guy, and if I don't take that into account, then I'm going to be thinking that the Bible's making objective statements that are really backhandedly subjective. You know, so we, we all need to take into account our situatedness. I mean, I, I had a little, a little, oh, it, was, it turned bad. I was at a church in town, and, and um, I forgot where I was, and we ended up having this sort of spat back and forth with somebody in the Sunday school class. It, I, I do that at Beeson, but I, I shouldn't do that in these, anyway, I apologize the next week. Um, but the, the man said, you know, I don't read the Bible with my politics in mind. And my response was, oh, yes, you do. And, and if you don't take into account the fact that you do that, then, you know, you're going you know, you're, you're to be reading it like the kind of right-wing Tea Party person you are. And, and, I, don't care what your, and, and I, said, I don't care what your politics are. I mean, like, I don't, I don't, I don't even want to engage that. But don't pretend like that doesn't influence the way in which you read it was all over the foment over Tim Keller's new book, A Generous Justice. There's a certain quarter of my denomination that's really upset about that book because it sounds too uh, social justice -y. Well, good night. I mean, we're going to have to lobotomize major portions of the Bible to make that work. So, all to say, you think about the ways in which we use the term hope, right? Hope. Well, how do we use hope? Well, I hope that happens. Well, it's kind of connected to wishful thinking. It might not happen, but I hope it does. That's not a biblical concept of hope. A biblical concept of hope is a confidence that what we're hoping in will for sure come true. I have a hope in that. That's why in Romans there can be overlap between pistis and, and hope, faith and hope, right? Um, because I believe for sure that this is going to happen, and I, and I rest... I risk everything on it. I mean, that's what Paul said. If, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, I'm going to Vegas, Right? I mean, that, he didn't say that, but he's, you, know what, you know what I mean. Um, to meditation. This is where I think we have to let the Bible itself begin to define for us what it means, and it's a fun word. It's, it's, uh, it's a Hebrew word that's, that's hagah, and it's an onomatopoetic word. It's, it's a word, in other words, that sounds like what it's actually trying to do. And so if you looked it up in a lexicon, for example, or a dictionary, and tried to say, well, what, what, is, what is meditate? Well, it's um, the cooing of a dove. It's the sound that on National Geographic when that video from a mile away goes in on that lion chewing on the side of that zebra. And what do you hear? You know what you hear? You hear, haga, 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 haga. That's what you hear. That muttering, that sort of crooning, that, that feasting sound that a lion makes over. I th that, that's, that's what's going on in the Bible. It is that kind of not otherworldly trance removal of yourself from reality, but it's being in the middle of reality and reflecting, hagaing, um, um, cooing in your own mind the truth of God. It's one of the things that I tell my children, and I really wish I could do it. Right? Isn't that how parenting is? Right? This is the hard reality of parenting. I'm sorry, it's my world. It's like I'm going to teach my boys what I, what I know is the truth, 
but they're going to become what I am. And that's what scares the living fire out of me, but that's another discussion. Um, but what's what I tell my boys? Hey, William, when you just hit your brother like that and he's screaming, lying on the floor, you know what happened there, son? You listened to yourself rather than talked to yourself. Right? And we need to be talking to ourselves. We need to be haggahing to ourselves. We need to be meditating to ourselves. In Jerry Bridges' language, we need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. I, I, I don't even know if Tom Cannon knows I know this, but my pastor has a little, a little uh, slogan on the cover of his notebook that he preaches all of his sermons out of. And the slogan is, believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts. Right? And he, I, don't know, I don't know where it comes from. That's what he has there. You ever seen that, David? He's got that little thing there. Um, and I think that taps into a, a biblical notion of meditation. Tell yourself the truth. Tell yourself the truth. Even when you're in a situation where it's hard to believe the truth. Meditate on God's truth. Hagah. Coo over it. You know, there's, it's, I don't really know the counseling psychology world. Some of you do. But that's, you know, that, doesn't that kind of tap into what cognitive therapy is? I don't really know all that, but isn't that kind of what it is? You've got to tell yourself what's true and not listen to yourself in the middle of that. And that, I think that, that taps into what meditation is. And, we're, and, let's let it, and let's let the Bible define that for us and, and then whatever the sort of halo data is from other religions and competing ideas, we'll just have to, we'll just have to keep those to the side. Thank you, thank you. Next question. <laughs> um, they're hard. They're hard. And, um, and I think part of the way in which you frame the question is right. Um, and again, this is that human expression part uh, to God that is authorized. Um, I don't think you find in these... Um, imprecatory psalms, um, reflections on personal injustice, someone's wronged me, they tend to be more kingdom of God oriented. And it's, um, you know, let those who despise the kingdom of God, the kingdom of our Christ, be finally overdone and overcome. And I think there's room for that kind of praying. You know, C.S. Lewis didn't like those, you know, he, and he's a good guy. He's on the side of the angels. C.S. Lewis called those psalms barbaric. Lewis did. Um, so, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, I don't, I don't want to lessen their sting. But I do think that these have ultimately to do with the kingdom of God and the triumph of the kingdom of God. And if you read those sort of um, imprecatory psalms, let your kingdom come, your will be done. I mean, we pray that in church all the time, right? Well, what do we, I mean, do you really know what we're, do we really know what we're praying? When we say, let your kingdom come, it's wrapped up in these things as well. Revelation 19, and he breaks out on a white horse. He's got a robe that's dipped in blood, and 
He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and the sword goes out of his mouth and the blood flows up into the, to the, to the neck of the horse. Um, you know, that's not, it's not just psalm stuff. And so the kingdom of God, when it comes, does mean the overthrowing of the, of the wicked and those who have set themselves in opposition to our Lord and His Christ. That's, that's revelation language. So every time you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're, you're tapping into that. Your kingdom come. Yet That's good news for us, but that's really, really bad news for others. Um, and there are times, I think, you know, we're, we live sedentary lives. We all do, I mean, for the most part. Um, but, you know, those Christians who are in the Sudan or those Christians who are in, uh, the, you know, the mountains of Peru or in Vietnam, you know, these, these, that 1040 window where there's so much suffering in the world, you know, I, I, I bet they, they get it. Um, and again, I, I don't in any way want, I mean, th- there's a hardness there. Um, but, uh, so I don't want to let that go, but I think I, w- I would like to view it more less American, sort of like me, someone hurt me and, you know, may their knees be cut out, you know, less Godfather-ish, you know, <clears throat> kind of thing, and more, and, and more kingdom of God and, and, and Christ. Um, yeah. They're tough. My students got on to me because I taught a whole class on Psalms and, and just avoided it. Um, and they wouldn't let me do it. So I, I've had to wrestle with this. They're, they're hard. Yeah, Joel. Oh, yeah. 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 And that'll help, I think, fill out some of this question as well. But I give this sort of experiment with my class, you know, and I'll tell them, you know, tell me which Psalms are messianic. And there are classic ones, right? I mean, some will argue Psalm 2, although I have a colleague who doesn't think Psalm 2 is messianic. Um, some will, you know, then they'll say what Psalm 22. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 110. I mean, so there's some classic ones that seem to be pointing to the Messiah and the one who's going to come. But then I'll, I'll, I'll sort of play with the students and I'll say, but really, as Christian readers of the Bible, we need to recognize that there aren't Messianic Psalms, but the whole Psalter is Messianic from the beginning to the end. And this is where Dietrich Bonhoeffer's little book on the Psalms is a real gem. You might like it, actually. I don't know if you read like German theologians, but Bonhoeffer's book on the Psalms is a nice way of entering into the Psalms. It's really small. And this is what Bonhoeffer says. He says, when we read the Psalms, we need to ask first, what does this Psalm have to do with Jesus? And then secondly, what does this Psalm have to do with us? And so you think about lamenting, and you think about praising, and you think about imprecation and the way in which Jesus died on the cross and suffered the judgment of God on himself. You think about what happened in Gethsemane. To my mind, this taps into what my theological tradition has identified as both the active and the passive obedience of Jesus. You know, he was actively obedient. That is, he lived life for me. He is the Torah observer. He is Psalm 1. I know that I can't be Psalm 1. I know that I'm, in Luther's terms, will be righteous and a sinner all the way to the end. But where do I find Torah keeping? In Christ. In Him. Well, where do I find lamenting? What it means to sorrow. Jesus sorrowed. He sorrowed on my account. So not only did Jesus die passively for me, He also lived actively for me. He kept the law. He knew what it was to praise properly. Um, And the other thing too simply is the Psalms were Jesus' hymn book. It's His prayer book. 
Um, that's the way in which he worshiped God uh, as a human. And, I mean, it's a very fun question to ask, even now, right? What's that bizarre verse in Hebrews 2? That's a quote from the Psalms. But when you gather together and worship, like it says in Psalms, he comes among the congregation and he sings with his brothers and sisters to the Father. Right? So in some incredibly powerful way that we don't understand, when Redeemer Community Church gathers at 5 o'clock on Sunday afternoon and you come together as the corporate community of faith and you're praising the Father, Jesus is with you in your midst singing to Him as well. And I think we need to let the Psalms be part of the way in which that's shaped. Um, so the whole of it's messianic. And I, and, I, and I don't want to give sort of a simple interpretive clue to that. I think it's partly just sort of wrestling with individual Psalms and thinking creatively in that way. Uh, for example, Psalm 98. Yahweh will return as a king. And when he returns as a king, he's going to bring justice and judgment. It's a praise psalm. Well, thinking about that messianically, it's, it's, not, a, it's not saying anything Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, but how do I think about that messianically? Well, Jesus. I mean, Jesus returns as Yahweh. And he comes to bring judgment. We see that. He's flipping the, temple, the, the tables in the temple. He's doing all these things. But in, here's the surprising part. Jesus, the judge, moves into Passion Week and takes the judgment of Yahweh onto himself and becomes the judge judged in our place. I mean, that's the Gospel. Well, there's how I begin to think about Psalm 98 extended into the larger Two Testament canon. And I just think that's the fun of reading the Psalms in light of the whole of the Bible. Um, so that I, I think we need to ask that question first, though. What does this have to do with Jesus, and how do I move into that? Uh, there. Yes, ma'am. Mrs. Brooks. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, that's a great question. And if you had a different guy up here, he'd answer it differently. You know, and that, that's just how, you know, so there's a, um, this is a debate, and this is one of the reasons we have denominations, and, you know, the, so. But, I mean, to my mind, I, I, you know, I'm, 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 full, I'm fully located in what I conceive to be the great tradition of Christian reading of the Old Testament, and that is recognizing that, there is Old Testament and New Testament with the same God who's covenant keeper over both and that we can make moves very naturally from Israel into the life of the church. Now, one thing though that I think that forces us to do though in the book of Psalms is to begin to think more corporately. There is the individual side in the book of Psalms, but there's also the corporate dimension as well. Um, so I think that we need to think that way a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I think, we, I think we can make those moves rather, um, rather easily. With, in other words, without running a lot of interference and in getting to, to that. Um, you just sort of do it right off the page. Uh, Calvin did that. Luther did that. Aquinas did that. Augustine did that. Irenaeus did that. I mean, it's like, you know, all those dome people. That's just how they did it. And, um, and there's a few, at, you know, in the late 19th century into the... Uh, uh, into the 20th century who, who have caused, who don't find that as persuasive anymore. But I would, to my mind, that those, that's, that's, in, that's abnormal within what I would call the great tradition. Not just the reformed tradition, but the great tradition of reading 
the Old Testament Christianly, that sort of that family resemblance that holds it all together. Um, now, with that said, though, I differ from my own, I would say, the sort of the core of my own tradition and what that means for Israel in the future. I still think there's a future for Israel. I think Romans 11 and the way in which it ends, uh, and Tom Wright, who's really sexy, I mean, everyone loves Tom Wright, um, N.T. Wright. You all read N.T. Wright. Funny story about N.T. Wright. He's a New Testament scholar. Uh, someone came up to him and said, I really like you, but whoever that Tom Wright guy is, I don't like that author. It's the same, same guy. Um, but uh, you know, Tom Wright argues that when Paul says all Israel will be saved at the end of Romans 11, that what he really means there is reconstituted Israel, the church. Tom Wright makes that argument. That's a classic Reformed argument, what would be called a supersessionistic argument. That is, Israel played its role in the divine economy in the Old Testament, but now the church is here. They're superseded. That's, you know, it's like the, 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 uh, the booster rockets on the space shuttle. Right? We're in Jesus' land, and they've fallen off back into the ocean. And, and I, I don't think that's the case. I think that there is a future for Israel, not necessarily national Israel, but at least ethnic Israel, eschatologically, in Jesus, in Him alone. And what that's going to look like, I just don't know. I just don't know, but, I, but, I'm, but I, the gifts and the callings of God, Romans 10 and 11, are without revocation, and, and, uh, and that, that means Israel, I think. In Christ, though, there is a sort of, fan, there's a very uh, cachet approach to this that's known as the two-covenant view that says Christians relate to God via Jesus, and, while Jews relate to the same God via Torah. Now, that's, that, that's a real problem. It's all going to be in Christ. Uh, but how that happens, I think, is uh, best. Well, you know, I don't know. Yes, ma'am. Could you share a little bit more about the division of the Psalter? I mean, it's fair to touch on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I th- and again, you know, there, there are certain. That's what I tell my students. You know, I call it a cone of importance <laughs> or a cone of, a cone of certainty. You know, like there are certain things at the top of the cone that are really, really important, like uh, Trinity. You know, you don't believe that? I think smoke, you know, it's bad. Um, uh, divinity of Jesus, fully, fully God, fully man. Uh, the atonement, sufficiency, of the authority of Scripture. These are very important. Your view on the millennium, right? Way down there, right? Um, so, you know, there are certain things that I believe to be true, but if you held a gun to my head, I, I could change my mind very easily. Like, are you an amillennialist? No, not anymore. <laughs> um, so I, I think this is the case with the Psalter, though, um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to the guillotine over it. But if you look at books one and two, there's a heavy emphasis on Davidic Psalms, the largest sort of collection of Davidic Psalms. So... And there seems to be an emphasis there on the Davidic covenant, right? But then when you move into book three, remember that weird verse at the end of chapter 72, the prayers of David, son of Jesse, have ended. Well, we know they really haven't. So what's that verse doing? Well, I think that verse is making a theological claim about the hope that's connected to the Davidic covenant. We're now now moving into disorientation, right? We're disoriented. So now you move into book three, and I think if you're thinking about it in light of the, the history of Israel, that would be the exile, I mean, this is the dark part. This is the part of confusion. This is the part of our hopes in the, in the Davidic king have completely fallen apart. We don't even have a Davidic, really, a, a, a good Davidic king on the throne at all. Zedekiah was a puppet guy. He was a joke. I um, mean, he was the last one before they went into exile. I mean, so here you are in exile. 
But then you move into book four, which I would argue is sort of the heart of the Psalter, Psalms 96 to 100, really kind of at the heart of it. And what's the emphasis there? Yahweh, Adonai, he is king. There's the king. So you move from the hope in the Davidic king to frustration over that hope and to an emphasis in book four on, the, on Yahweh himself. He is our king and he is returning. He is coming, which then leads into Psalm 100, which is, I mean, you know this song. This starts the favorite Thanksgiving song, but it's just loaded with royal language. Enter into his courts with thanksgiving. Enter his gates with praise. This is like he's in his royal palace. He's the king. That's who we're, we're worshiping. And then when you move into book five, where are we starting to go now? Unending praise, right? A little disorientation, still up, but once you get to those hallelujah psalms, and then 147 to 150, they're just explosive praise, and that's where it moves. So I think that's kind of how it works when you sort of look at it in light of the, the um, sort of history of Israel. But the problem with that is there are these, you know, those three or four here just, you know, like, well, what do we do with that? I mean, there's, there's always that part. It's like putting a bike together, you know, on Christmas Eve, and all right, there's the bike, but that, there's a whole bag of bolts there that I know is supposed to be there somewhere, but, you know, that... Yeah, yeah, that's probably... That's a, good, I'm going to write a book on that, make a lot of money. That's how, that's how it works, yeah. Uh-huh. That's a great question. No, I don't think there's really a way to gauge that. that that's, a, that's a certain kind of um, behind-the-text question that would be very hard for... I mean, there are some scholars who've made careers out of trying to figure out the answer to that kind of question. It'd be called a religious historical approach to reading the Psalms. And I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm a little bit more resistant to that because I, I, I think we have the Psalms as it is, and we're forced to wrestle with that question on our own as, as, as we as the, the body of Christ um, enter into the life of the Psalter and, and let that shape the way in which we pray. And you're right. I mean, one of the things that is a repeated theme in the prophets of the Old Testament is God does not want our religion. He doesn't. He doesn't care about external ritualistic worship if it's not tied to hearts of belief and repentance, right? Jeremiah 7, he comes into the temple. What does he say? Do not say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord this is. Very likely there that Jeremiah is actually repeating the liturgy of the temple. Don't come in here continuing to say your liturgy and bring in your sacrifices and you go out and you treat your neighbors the way in which you do. Don't do it. I don't even want it anymore. Amend your ways or I'm going to you know, pour out my judgment on you. So this is where I think um, our acts of worship are constantly acts of mortification and vivification, if I can use big theological terms, right? Of dying to self and being made alive again in the gospel, of repenting and believing. You know, it's, it's, uh, 
Um, what do I do when I come into church and I don't want to sing? I don't feel like singing. You kind of pray and, and seek God's face as you repent your way into a new set of feelings. Sort of sing your way into a new set of feelings kind of thing. Um, and I think that's where we, we constantly need to be um, uh, dying to self and being made alive again in the gospel, right? That's one thing. And taking stock of that, you know, being, being, being honest about those sort of things. But here's the other part, and this is, again, where the gospel comes in and shapes our understanding of all these things. My prayer life is in Christ. It's in Christ. I think it's one of the tragically lost themes of Protestant theology at its best is the ongoing intercessory role of Christ on our behalf right now. He does not sit idly in heaven. So what, 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 what's Jesus doing right now for us, John 17? He's praying for us. And so how are my prayers? I mean, how does it work? Well, I think this is how it works. I pray to the Father by the Spirit in Christ. And Jesus takes my human words, my human fumblings, He cleans them up and He presents them to the Father in the way in which they should be presented. Just like Romans 8 says. We don't know what to say. We groan. But the Spirit knows what to say with words that are beyond our ability to utter. And so this is where, you know, I think we need to have a sort of robust understanding of our position in Christ, our union in Christ. And my prayer life is shaped with that understanding. I'm praying to you, Father. I, I think this is what I need to say, but receive it, Jesus, in the way in which it needs to be received and present it to the Father on my behalf. And you know what that does? I think it kind of allows us to have a little bit of freedom with I learned this from a theologian named Karl Barth, actually. He said, you know, we, that gives us some freedom for the ways in which we talk to God. You know what it's like, don't you, when you've been around people and you're like, wow, they really know how to pray, right? Well, there's something to that that I don't want to take away from, but at the same time, some of that's not all, you know, shouldn't be as impressive as it is because even that person's prayers need to be cleaned up by Jesus. So that's, I think, that part of mortification and vivification, dying to self, and living in the reality of the gospel that Jesus prays for us. And my prayer life, my psalter life, is lived in Him.